Hello and welcome to the Language Revolution podcast. My name is Kate Hamilton. I'm a languages teacher and founder of Babel Babies. The aim of this podcast is to get people talking about talking. So without further ado, let's get started. In this first episode, I'm talking to Thomas Back, who is a medic, a neuroscientist and a reader in neuroscience at Edinburgh University. Hi, Thomas. Hi. Thank you for joining me today. Um, so I guess my first question is, why is a neuroscientist being interviewed on a languages podcast? What has neuroscience got to do with languages? Well, <clears throat> I would say that languages have played a fundamentally important role in the development of our understanding of the brain. Mm -hmm. And that's for the last few thousand years. Right. So the first example, for instance, I can tell of a selective deficit in cognitive functions caused by a specific brain lesion is aphasia, so loss of language, described in a manuscript from ancient Egypt 3,000 years ago. Wow, 3,000 years So from this point of view, I would say, given how important language is for our functioning, how it defines us as mm -hmm. a species, and how it defines our life, in a way, language plays a very, very important role in neuroscience. In 19th century, again, the first descriptions, modern descriptions of association of specific deficits and specific brain lesions was aphasia described by Broca mm -hmm. in 1861. So from this point of view, I could say that the work on language has been at the forefront on the work on our understanding of the brain and the relationship between brain, cognition, thinking, and so on, as I say, for thousands of years. Okay, so scientists are completely fascinated by language and how it, how it works and how, you know, how our brain processes well, I don't, it. I don't yeah. think we can really understand mm. Homo sapiens, mm. our species, without having a profound understanding of language as well, since, right. as I say, it is such a fundamentally important and defining feature of us. That's right, it separates us from animals, doesn't it? So if um, we can talk about the brain then for a minute, so how does the brain store languages? Like if I cut open my brain, can I see the bit where languages are kept? Does it have like a compartment? Or? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is that the verb store might not be the one which, let's say, modern science would be using to describe it. Mm -hmm. And that is something which is very interesting because I would say there has been a huge shift in our understanding, I mean, paradigm shift, you could say, in our mm -hmm. understanding of the brain over the last few decades. When I started working in this field in the 70s, we had a view of the brain a little bit like a chest of drawers. So okay. there, the term store would, in fact, really fit. So the idea yeah. was that we have this area dedicated to this function and this area dedicated to the other mm -hmm. function and so on. Is that, sorry to interrupt you, but is that where, you know, the phrenology head, where you've got the lines Well, I mean, in some, on in some way, the yeah. idea is similar. And mm. when new neuroimaging methods appeared in the late 20th century, there was a criticism that basically what they are doing is what was called chromophrenology, colorful phrenology. Mm -hmm. So the difference to the models of 19th century is that instead of black and white, they are adding, you know, the kind of nice orange and so on for brain activation. Mm -hmm. But the theoretical point was quite well made. Conceptually, they were using 
very more much more advanced technology, but conceptually they're very similar to the idea that you have, you know, when you go to second-hand shops and you find this kind of nice brains from 19th century. Yeah. This has changed over the last few decades, also very much with the advance of technology, because we can now not only look at activities in certain areas, but their connectivity. Mm -hmm. So I would say that, you know, it's still, we are still in the middle of the shift, so it's difficult to say, so to say, say the last word, but I would say we have seen a shift from areas to networks. Okay. So our understanding now is not so much that there are certain areas like like cupboards mm -hmm. where you have things stored. They mm -hmm. are different networks which get active when we, for instance, think about certain concepts, use certain words and so on and so on. So it's not so much like a filing cabinet. Um, it's more um, like a web? I would say yeah. exactly. Yeah. And one of the things which I find fascinating is mm. to what extent this change in our understanding also reflects the change in the reality of the world we are living in. Mm -hmm. In 60s, 70s, 80s, I mean, computers were very new and people were fascinated by the modules and putting together the modules and so on. Mm -hmm. The computers nowadays are much more interactive. They can, they are not so deterministic. They can learn new mm -hmm. things. We have the whole field of machine learning. And of course, I would say the probably single most important changed feature in our environment is the internet. Yes. And from this point of view, I think it's probably not a bad metaphor that we understand our brain a little bit more like, let's say, networks on mm. Twitter or social media and so on and mm -hmm. internet rather than like a chest of drawers. Okay, so it's not like the chest of drawers is quite fixed, isn't it? Yes. So um, my next question is about if we have more than one language. So how, how do we envisage that? So do we have more than one web or do we... Uh... Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an extremely yeah. good question. I would say that the old-fashioned area or chest of drawers or cupboard-based models of the brain had difficulty in accommodating multilingualism because, in yeah. a way, the obvious question was, so if that is, so to say, the language area, if you speak then, you know, two languages, does it mean that the second is kind of pushing the other away? Mm -hmm. Do they get, you know, uh, is it getting crowded when you put a third language in? Yeah, because or, you, I've heard you before yeah, use a metaphor that's um, right. about the sock drawer. Exactly, so. exactly. So the yeah. idea was that basically adding new languages will kind of in some way push mm. the, the other things, or if we have too many languages, then it doesn't leave space for other things like math or mm -hmm. physics or science and mm -hmm. so on and so on. Mm -hmm. And this way of thinking is still very, very strongly, uh, you know, present in many people's minds. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you, you read, for instance, the ideas like, you know, oh, people, children should not learn languages because then they have no space to learn math and so on and so on. So mm -hmm. it's still something which I would say certainly doesn't reflect our understanding of the brain at the moment, mm -hmm. but it's very, very widely spread and decides how people conceptualize, for instance, languages. Yeah. So, as I say, from this point of view, the what I call limited resources models or the cupboard models are not particularly, don't lend themselves particularly mm -hmm. to accommodate uh, multilingualism. In networks models, it's, I would say, almost the opposite. Yeah. In a way, because adding something to a network can stabilize it. That, so you yes. don't have competition. Mm. The whole point of a net is, so to say, if you add one more node to the net, you may make the net stronger. Yes. So that means mm -hmm. in the network models, adding a new language 
is an advantage. It strengthens the system. It makes it more yes. stable. Mm -hmm. So from something which was competition for limited place, we move to something mm -hmm. which is in fact integration. Mm -hmm. However, this requires integrating of the things which what we have. And that's where I think your way of thinking of mm -hmm. languages as connected with each other yeah. is very much in the spirit of what I mm -hmm. see from neuroscience, namely that we don't learn things separately, That's right. we learn things by integrating them in what we already know. Mm -hmm. And I think for me the way of learning languages that you advocate, mm -hmm. which is basically not treating them as completely separate units, not interacting with each other, yes. but rather as something which is, so to say, interactive, Yes. It fits very, very nicely our current understanding well, of that's the good, brain. Because the way we teach languages is that, you know, if you're learning about French, you also sort of accidentally, as a byproduct, you're learning some Spanish, Italian, Romanian, mm -hmm. Portuguese at the same time. It's connected. And if you... And in fact, English. Yeah, and, well, and English too, exactly. And there seems to be, um, as an English teacher, I've often been told that English isn't really a language like other languages. It's very much a language like other languages and we can look for clues and we can decode and our knowledge about one informs you know, the whole, doesn't it? So I guess the model of the sock drawer, you, you know, you're going to need to take some socks out if you want mm -hmm. to add t-shirts. So there's a limited resource, yeah, yeah. is that what you were saying? Exactly. Whereas with the network model, mm -hmm. or like, like a web, the more threads that you add, the stronger mm -hmm. the, whole, the whole net becomes. So that, that seems to work well, doesn't it? So it's actually our brain is perfectly capable of juggling more than one language. And, um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in fact, there are good reasons to believe that language mm -hmm. developed originally so to say, as languages, yes. namely in multilingual context. If mm -hmm. we look at the society, I mean, more kind of hunter-gatherer, so, nomadic, pre-agricultural mm -hmm. societies across the world, whether it's in the Amazon or in Papua New Guinea or in uh, Aboriginal Australia, we'll find mm -hmm. that uh, people are extremely multilingual. In fact, there is a very interesting phenomenon, I mean, described particularly in the Amazon, of linguistic exogamy. So linguistic exogamy, exogamy. yeah, okay. where it is considered a taboo mm -hmm. to marry someone who speaks the same language. Oh, yes, I've heard about that too. So it means yeah. that basically all kids grow up with parents speaking different languages and all adults are mm. supposed to learn at least a new language yeah. when they marry. Yeah, so this is, this is where you have, say, a village where um, if I, I've heard that it's usually the, the women who come to the man's village. Yeah. So there's one language that the men all have in the village and then each female brings in kind yes. of her language and it, you know, there could easily be I don't know, how, how many languages might there be? There might be six or 20. Yeah, or, or a dozen or yeah. so, yeah. absolutely. So, so the yeah. children have the language of the, the village, the environment, mm -hmm. and then they've got parents who both speak different languages. And, yep. and so is this a model that humans have had for a long time? Or? Well, I think we can assume, I mean, obviously yeah. it's very difficult to kind of rerun our language evolution, so we have to speculate from what yes. we have mm -hmm. in the current situation. But given the fact that you have, so to say, these models, of small-scale societies, as my mm. uh, friend and colleague Nick Evans called them, small-scale societies across the world, mm -hmm. you have relatively stable communities of maybe a few hundred or a few thousand people speaking a certain language, and that was probably the model which is very close to how 
humans used to live before mm -hmm. the development, well, first of agriculture and then definitely of kind of modern states, yeah. methods of communication and so okay. on. So from this point of view, uh, I think the important consequence for our understanding of the brain is that our brain originally developed to be able to accommodate multilingualism. Mm -hmm. So I think in a way it's not correct to speak about the bilingual brain or how bilingualism yeah. or mm. multilingualism shapes our brain mm. because our brain is naturally multilingual and I would say monolingualism is the odd one out. It's right. the special case mm -hmm. in which because of impoverished linguistic input yes. only one language was able to develop. Okay, so actually our brain is naturally, you know, ready and able Absolute, and absolutely. it has developed over several thousand years to be multilingual. Absolutely. So being a speaker of one, absolutely. Like one language and is the... Yeah, and that brings us sure. to the motto mm. of the first International Day of Multilingualism that we had yesterday, mm. multilingual is normal. Yes. Uh, I know that there was quite a lot of debate about it, whether it's kind of exclusive and so on, but I think the main message or important message is that we should not treat multilingualism as something strange, mm. something rare, something that needs to be explained. In a way it's monolingualism, which mm. is rare, strange, that needs to be explained. And if we look, as I say, for most of the human history, most of people on this planet, up to the present day in mm -hmm. fact, are multilingual. So is there, do we know the total on the planet? So is it sort of 60% of people or 80%? I, I hear it's always, it's always very difficult. I mean, I heard yeah. you know, different numbers. It's always very difficult to know exactly because mm -hmm. of, for instance, uh, I mean, starting with the fact that a lot of multilingual people live in countries where you don't necessarily have a statistical infrastructure that mm -hmm. would measure languages and so on. For instance, in Africa, Africa is extremely multilingual, mm -hmm. but as I say, very often it's difficult to really, mm. so to say, describe and classify. Also, what you describe or you define as a language can be very, dif right, yes. very different. And people very often don't even, let's say, they would not describe themselves as multilingual because it's simply self-evident. Yes. One of the very interesting comments that we got in the context of this, uh, of the International Day of Multilingualism was, I think that someone was very surprised about the very high endorsement in UK and US. Yes. Now, of course, one of the reasons is very banal, that that's where we have most of our contacts, that we are living, and that's, so that's say, where we are inter yes. you know, interacting. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a second <laughs> very interesting point. Both UK and US are, in fact, highly multilingual societies, but very, very monolingual ideologies. Mm. So there is a discrepancy, there is a tension between a, in fact, at least in many places, certainly places like London, for instance, a very multilingual reality mm. and the official monolingual or you could say mono normative monoglot ideology. Now, if you go to places, let's say, like Africa or like mm -hmm. India, people will not even think about it because it's so self-evident that you speak different languages, yeah. that you, you don't define yourself as multilingual because that's what people are. Yes. I mean, it's... I've, exactly. I've encountered that where someone told me that they weren't very good at languages. And I said, well, hang on a minute, don't you speak two languages? And said, oh, well, I've always spoken those, so that doesn't... Yeah, yeah, it doesn't, that, exactly. doesn't count. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, in a way, a kind of lovely example <laughs> is when I would two years ago when I was giving a talk in 
the, for the um, African Society of Neuroscience in Entebbe in Uganda, the first question I got was from Tom Tago, with whom I'm in touch ever since, mm. uh, from Ghana. And he said, well, Serian, I come from Ghana, and in Ghana we all speak, you know, three to four languages usually. Is it much better when I speak six, seven, or eight? Oh, so that is, so yeah. to say, that is the baseline from which you mm -hmm. start. Mm -hmm. So that means in some way that this hashtag that we had is not really necessary mm. in a country like India or in many African mm. countries because it's simply self-evident. Yeah. I would say this hashtag is important in mm. countries where there's a discrepancy mm -hmm. between the multilingual reality and the official monolingual ideology. So what, what's been kind of growing over the decade that I've been involved teaching uh, languages with Babel Babies is that people really, um, they're talking a lot more about having a bilingual baby. It's become um, it's tradable now. It's like there's a big enterprise is based around it. So can you know? Um, can we talk for a minute now about the bilingual advantage? Is there this thing called the bilingual advantage that people seem to um, be basing you know businesses around? And, and a lot of parents ask me, you know, oh, shall I try and introduce yeah. other languages? Is it good for the child? I sort mean, of to have, yeah, you know, if, yeah. even if you are, say, in the UK, where you know, and you're yeah. you know, both English mm -hmm. speakers. Is it a good idea to try and introduce another language and yeah, I mean, does it produce this advantage? Personally, I don't like the term bilingual advantage mm. because in a way it is also assuming that bilingualism is something strange which mm. kind of has to be learned and then suddenly causes some advantages. Mm. In my model, as I say, bilingualism, multilingualism, in fact, is something very natural. Yeah. So if anything, there might be a monolingual disadvantage rather than bilingual advantage. Okay, so a monolingual disadvantage, not a bilingual yeah. advantage. Yeah. Now, okay. the reason yeah. is, why do I think it's a difference? You could say it's just a kind of different way of looking at it, but I think it has important uh, corollaries. Mm. Now, if we think of monolingualism, I sometimes compare monolingualism to the sedentary lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Basically, when we are living as hunter-gatherers, we didn't have the opportunity to spend most of our life in the sofa, watching television and drinking beer and so on. So mm -hmm. in a way, in order to survive, we had to move, we had to walk, we had to run and so on yes. and so on. Yes. Now, most of us have mm -hmm. sedentary jobs, yeah. so in a way, we don't have in order to survive to move. Yes. But we can compensate for that by going to the gym, by going walking, by mm -hmm. you know, doing or hill walking or yeah. cycling or jogging and so on and so on. Yes. Now, in analogy, I would say multilingualism is for me one of the most natural ways of our mental stimulation. That mm -hmm. is, so to say, the cognitive equivalent of running, you know, for hunt or mm. walking around looking for berries, so to say. Okay. Now, we don't need to do it nowadays because of the societies we live in, we can survive quite well speaking one language. But that leaves, so to say, a gap. Yes. This gap can be filled by conscious learning of languages, but it can be also filled by other mental activities, for instance, you know, art, music, and so on and so on. So I wouldn't say that language is unique or the only way how we can train our mind. It is probably the most natural way. Okay. But we can compensate it. So from this point of view, my prediction would be it's not that every monolingual will have, so to say, the set deficits, because many of them will compensate in a thousand of different ways. Yeah. However, it means if you don't compensate at all, you end up like a sedentary lifestyle, you lack the mental 
activity. Mm-hmm. Now this can explain a very interesting detail of our evidence in monolingualism. Mm-hmm. Most studies that look separately at people from different social, socio-economic and educational background found more difference, or in fact only difference, in people from lower and not higher mm-hmm. socioeconomic background. And for me, it's not surprising. And that is something we find in results from California mm-hmm. down to the studies that I was conducting with Savarna Ladi and our Indian colleagues, where mm-hmm. we found, for instance, that uh, illiterates had a much stronger effect, mm-hmm. protective effect of bilingualism than literates. Is that because so, their brains are trying harder? Well, no, so, I, I would or... say because for them, I mean, they don't have all this, so to say, cultural compensation. So for mm. them, mm. speaking more than one language is one of the main sources mm. of, so to say, mental training. Right. Whereas, if you live in a society where, you know, you go here to yoga classes and there to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, do astral art and then you are doing creative writing course mm-hmm. and so on and so on, mm-hmm. you have, so to say, you have a lot of mm-hmm. those activities. So from this point of view, as I say, I would expect the biggest effects, in fact, in people coming from lowest education. And here we come into kind of very, very interesting phenomenon because, as you mentioned, very often multilingualism, for instance, in Britain is perceived as a kind of upper middle class educated it's, yes, pleasure. It's a, you know, people are aware that it might be a disadvantage yeah. if children are not introduced to languages. And um, I think it's, I, at this point I'd like to sort of, you know, just can we have a conclusive point? You know, is there a conclusive piece of evidence to say it's a great thing for children? I've heard things like um, it makes you better at maths, children will be better at concentrating mm-hmm. um, in school if they um, are using other languages, yeah. and that will have a knock-on effect yeah. that they will get a better, broader education yeah. because they mm-hmm. can, can language give you that kind of cognitive yeah. I mean, I mean, just to say, boost, well, to, to start with, scientific evidence is practically never conclusive in a way of kind of having one study which decides it. Okay. It is incremental. Mm-hmm. It depends very much where you conduct studies, so it depends on the population, on the situation and so on. But what we can say is, I mean the term I would use in this context is converging evidence. So we have evidence coming from different countries, different populations, different methods, mm-hmm. suggesting that if anything, if there is a difference, it is in favor of multilinguals. Mm-hmm. So that means you find some studies which don't find differences, some studies which find differences, but it will be very rare to find studies showing indeed negative effects. So from this point of view, so to say the big debate is not whether it's something positive or negative, mm-hmm. the debate is rather whether there is no effect or whether there is an effect, right. and if there is an effect, Mm-hmm. It is assumed that it's mainly a positive one. Okay, so what are some of the positive effects of learning um, more than one language? So, well, I would say you can kind of group them in three interrelated areas. The first is probably the intuitively clearest, and that is what we call metalinguistic knowledge, knowledge of languages, mm-hmm. something which, in fact, you work yes. with, so to say, every day. And you know, I like always to give some examples from my daughter, who is now six and exposed at least to three languages, English, Polish and Spanish, although her Spanish is much better than her Polish. Mm-hmm. When she asked me one day how you say envelope in Spanish and Polish, I say, well, in Spanish they sobre and in Polish they coperta. Mm-hmm. To which she said, yes, but coperta sounds Spanish to me. It does. Yeah. She was absolutely right. Coperta is a Latin word which came to Polish 
via Italian. Uh -huh. So it has a phonology which is much more similar to Romance languages than to Slavonic. Uh -huh. So in a way, at that time she was four or so, so with four years she already discovered uh -huh. certain correspondences, what sounds strange, what doesn't sound strange, and so on. Uh -huh. And the same is true, by the way, for written language. So when she was looking at the word Czerwony, which is the Polish for the color red, starting with the phoneme czy, she said, ah, so in Polish czy is written CZ, but in English and Spanish CH. So practically, without any mm. training on explanation, just from observation, she already discovered what we call the phoneme graphene correspondence, yes. and the fact that it is in a way different, or it can be different from language to language, that you have the very same or very similar phoneme tree in all three languages, mm -hmm. but is rendered through different letter combinations in, uh, in them. So from this point of view, I would say this is, so to say, very, very natural. So of course, if you speak different languages, you are much more likely to learn new ones. You don't perceive languages as something mm -hmm. strange and so on. You rather have this kind of organic idea mm -hmm. of languages relating to each other. In fact, I mean, mm. now with Alois, my daughter, I'm kind of playing sometimes about English and, uh, and German, where I'd ask her to predict how a certain word might be in German mm -hmm. when she knows how it is in English. Now, the second area, so that's something which probably is, as I say, it applies both to spoken and written language, and I would say it's probably quite intuitive. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's probably where we need least convincing. The second interesting point is what we call social cognition. Now, Again, to give an example from Alba, when I, uh, when I told her, let's say in Polish, that I have headache, which in Polish would be boli mnie głowa, she would walk to mommy and say, that, mommy, mommy, daddy has sore head. She yeah. knew that mommy will not understand what means boli mnie głowa. Mm -hmm. If I said the same sentence in Spanish, me duele la cabeza, she would not translate because it's clear that mommy knows Spanish so being Spanish. So exactly, so she yeah. knows very well who speaks with languages. And what age was she when? And that, I mean, that was, you know, three and a half or so, wow. or four. So kids learn very, very fast mm. that different people know different languages. In fact, they also know which people learn languages. So about, you know, uh, some of our friends, she would say, mm. oh, well, she speaks Spanish and he tries to speak Spanish. Oh. <laughs> so, so they can distinguish very well yeah. who can, so to say, speak what. Well, their social skills are Well, exactly. So the point skills, is, once you yeah. know that people have different knowledge of languages is only a very, very small step to discover what we call theory of mind. And mm. that is that other people might have knowledge that we don't have, mm. but we might have knowledge that other people don't have. Yes. That is something which children find not, or many children find not so easy to mm. learn. It takes a while mm -hmm. to distinguish between their own perspective and the perspective of so others. I've read about an experiment where the interviewer has a box and an object. Exactly. And this is where the um, scientist puts the object where the child yes. can see it, exactly. but they can't see it. And is it true that exactly. the bilingual children exactly. are quicker to work yes. out that the scientists can't see the same Exactly. I think that thing. one of the studies from Kinsler Lab yeah. in, in, in the US, and I mean, they are very, very nice, elegant studies showing that mm. bilingual children are much faster in getting the gist that mm. people have different perspectives mm -hmm. and they don't identify their perspective as the only one. Yes, I suppose the children who spoke yeah. one language 
sort of was slower to that's work right out. i mean they find it out the, as well the, the but other, as i say it's more difficult slower yes. to work out that this um the interviewer couldn't see the absolutely. object because their perspective was absolutely right, absolutely so that, that's really interesting isn't it because that creates a sort of more um empathy it, it, you can see someone, oh, else, you can see someone else's point of view at least understanding that yeah. you have different points of view absolutely mm. Mm -hmm. But now comes the kind of third area, which is probably the most contested one, but for me also very interesting, kind of logically connected to the first two, or definitely the second. Mm -hmm. Now, all the theoretical knowledge, who speaks which language, would not be of any use without some mechanism of control that allow you to speak the correct language, the correct person. Mm -hmm. So let's say, if Alba would know that no, she can speak Polish with me and uh, Spanish with mommy and then Spanish with both or whatever, yeah. but she didn't have the methods of controlling, the words would be coming as a kind of mixed garbage, there mm -hmm. would be no way she could adjust to it. So in order so you to... mean she wouldn't be able to separate exactly. her languages? So right. in, order, in order to translate your knowledge about people-specific, uh, so to say, language repertoires, mm -hmm. language repertories, you need what we call executive functions okay. in like order a... to translate it mm -hmm. into action. So is that like a dashboard, like a control panel? Or a sort of a bit, I mean, basically, yeah. you a most multilingual people know exactly which combination of languages they can speak with whom. Mm -hmm. So one important thing is, for instance, language mixing, code switching and so on is very, very common. So let's say if I speak as a multilingual with someone with whom I share two or three languages, I will mm -hmm. mix them. So I yeah. am first in a fortunate situation to have a colleague of mine, Kasia Przybycin, who works for Bilingual Matters, and, uh, and she has exactly the same combination, mm -hmm. I would say, of the four main languages, namely Polish, German, English, and Spanish. Okay. So when I speak with her, I can put, you know, we can start speaking English and then we can switch to another language or I can say something in Spanish, add something in German. And if you can't remember a word... Exactly, I can put in another language. Uh, yeah. Of course, when I speak with someone who doesn't have these four languages, I know that I have to, so to say, filter out mm. those languages that the other person doesn't know. Mm -hmm. So that means you have, so to say, a kind of mental map as multilingual, yeah. which combinations of languages you can use with whom. Yeah. And as I say, socially, that is something which you can do, but you still need your mechanism of monitoring mm. in order really to activate, to use the correct language in the correct context. That's right. I've um, heard um, one of my colleagues has an Italian husband and their children are English and Italian speakers. And the nursery was a little bit concerned that the daughter, who was two, kept asking, you know, for milk, latte in Italian, and then the nursery teachers didn't understand, and they were you know, they were very yeah, yeah. supportive. And actually, it was just the child doing kind of a, an experiment and working out, yeah. you know, if I speak Italian here, that won't work, mm -hmm. so I'll, I'll use my other language. And it, very quickly, she worked out that sure, we speak exactly. English at nursery, and at home I can speak English or Italian, it doesn't mm -hmm. really matter, because everybody understands both. And exactly. She, she could just sort it out. It's exactly. An incredibly young age to... Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And that shows also another mm -hmm. kind of very, very common prejudice against bilingualism and uh, namely the fear that bilingualism or multilingualism confuses people. Yes. 
The word confusion is probably the most commonly used inappropriate term okay. in the context of multilingualism. Mm -hmm. The only people who get confused by multilingualism are monolinguals. So just people who speak one language? Exactly, because they, they think, because mm. they cannot even imagine mm. that there could be more than one language. Mm -hmm. So, of course, their conceptualization of multilingualism is confusion. Right. You don't find, children don't get confused. Mm -hmm. They might get sometimes, for instance, if one language is dominant, you might have the influence of that language on the other. So they will, for instance, translate grammatical structures from one yes. language to the other and or so on. If word it, exactly, if it's, yeah. if it's, so to say, one of them is more dominant. But it is not because they are confused and they don't know that they are two languages, but because one is, so to say, much stronger than others. Mm -hmm. We have it as well when we learn languages as adults, that, for instance, we might be inclined, at least in the beginning, to take our syntactic structures and then, so to say, put the words of another language. Yeah. So it's not confusion in terms of not knowing, mm. it's simply a kind of imbalance in which one structure, one way of expressing things is stronger than the other. Mm -hmm. The same, by the way, appears also when we speak about you know, one of the areas of my particular interest, language learning, language use in later life. Yes. When Lingo Flamingo in uh, Glasgow had the wonderful idea of offering language courses to people, I mean older people and even patients with dementia. One of the objections or hesitations that were expressed, for instance, by nursing home staff and so on was, well, but that will confuse patients, they will mm. get agitated, we'll have yeah. to sedate them. So in a way there was okay. kind of idea that there will be something dangerous Some happening, yes. a kind of panic, yes. which is for me a kind of very typical monolingual mm. prejudice against. And in fact, I mean, we have now done the evaluation of the first, so to say, courses. It goes very well. Mm. I don't think we had one single example of someone who would mm. become agitated no. through being exposed to another language. Mm. And there's another, I think, dramatic example of this, and that is the national census. Right. So, Britain is interestingly in some way a very progressive country in that in national census, already in 2011, the questions planned for the next census 2021, people are allowed to name multiple ethnic and national identities. Right. So you can feel as being Scottish and British, or in fact you can be even Italian and British if you want. Yes. You can feel that you have a mixed, you know, Southern Asian and European or whatever ethnic heritage. However, you are only allowed one language. And is this where it says, what is your main language? Exactly, and the mm -hmm. assumption is you can only mm -hmm. put one, there is one language, there is no provision, for instance, you might speak one language at home mm -hmm. and the other at work, mm -hmm. let alone that you might use, for instance, more than one language at home. So the, mm -hmm. uh, it's very strong, the normality is, so to say, here mm -hmm. is a very, very nice example of a normative monolingualism so being it's, forced upon yeah. society. It is, because it's very easy for just a person who speaks one yeah. language to say what their main language is. But I have three children, for example. It's a bit like saying, which is your main child? Exactly. Absol absolutely <laughs> well, that. I'm quite fond of all three of them. Absolutely that. So for me... <laughs> I couldn't pick a main child. For me, it's very yeah. easy to say who is my main child, because I have only one daughter. Yeah. But exactly as you say. Yeah. And, you know, what would mean main child? Is it the main child? Is it the one, who, the firstborn or the lastborn? Or the yeah. one who is, mm. you know, behave best? Or the one who behave worst and makes most problems? Mm. And so on. 
that is absolutely, absolutely unclear. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is, I mean, we are campaigning together with you know, uh, some academic colleagues, we are campaigning for a change practically to put language in line with ethnicity and, nas- and nationality as something which allows you multiple choices. Mm-hmm. And one of the main arguments is again, oh, but if we allow people to ma- name more than one language, they will be confused. Of course they won't. No. The monolinguals would be confused, but yes. they don't have a language, there's no because problem. Because normal is your normal, isn't it? Exactly. So you, know, so you, have, yeah. so you can see here yeah. how the, you know, the monolingual norm is really forced mm. upon people. Now, interestingly, we asked uh, the statistical office in New Zealand, which is one of the countries which allows multiple uh, options, whether they have experienced ever confusion what to name. Mm -hmm. They say, no, there's absolutely no confusion. That's the only way we can do justice to our society in which more than one language is being spoken. Mm -hmm. So, if you have this question, people don't get confused. No. Exactly. It seems like it's just obvious to me. So, so, for, so, so in some it, way, I yeah. would say for maybe one of the symptoms of monolingualism as a pathological condition is mm. an irrational fear mm. of languages, of confusion called by languages. That's it. It's really interesting, isn't it? Well, thanks, Thomas, because it seems to me, just to sum up here, that the brain is perfectly capable of learning multiple languages. Humans have done it for millennia and it's perfectly natural but there's some sort of uh, barrier to um, attitudes really and perhaps we'll get um, we're going to have a couple of uh, more conversations and we'll get into more detail Um, and in our next conversation we're going to talk about um, your dementia research and how learning languages is really Mm -hmm. important for our health and um, this has been really interesting to understand exactly how uh, normal it is to speak languages and how we're actually really primed and ready to do mm-hmm. it, aren't we? We've got all the tools that we need. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Speak to you again soon.